Craig is Craig's absolutely right. We are a, we are a blessed church, and I, I man, I'm thankful for. I'm thankful as well for all of you that helped out at Kids Bible Camp. It was cool to see it. It was cool to be a part of it, um, and 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 God did some cool things that I think we'll continue to see um, down the road. And like he said, you'll hear more about that and 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 other things at, at Summer's End celebration. So that's always an exciting week. But if you have your Bibles with you this morning. I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, and before we dive into our study this morning, I want to to give you a quick update of where we're going over the next couple months uh, in here on Sunday mornings, because after we finish chapter 7, which will be in two weeks, on August 6th, we're going to take a quick detour from the book of Acts. We've been going at it pretty steady since January and Acts is a long book, and, and we're going to be in it for a while, so I don't, I don't want you to get serious fatigue. And there are a couple of very natural breaking points in the book of Acts, and after chapter 7 is one of them. So when we finish this chapter, we're going to move outside the book for a couple months. I'm going to be in Tanzania on August 13th and August 20th with our medical missions outreach team. We'll be leaving on the 10th. So Jeff will be preaching on the 13th, and on that day we'll be seeing off the Nigros. They leave just a couple days later uh, for that one-year internship in Albania, so that's, that's exciting. That's going to be an exciting day. Uh, Craig will be preaching on the 20th, so you're not going to want to miss that. And then on the 27th, we'll have our Summer's in celebration. That's always one of our highlights of the year. So that's kind of how August is going to line out. But then when we hit September, I'm going to begin a uh, four-week series on what I'm calling issues facing the church, uh, issues facing the church at large. And in those four weeks, I'm going to look at at, at four wars, four spiritual wars that we're dealing with. And we're going to talk about the worldview war, and I'm going to define a biblical worldview for you and kind of what's at stake there, Um, a culture war and, and what's going on in our culture and how it's warring against what's going on in here and what God's trying to do, family war, how all of that affects our family, and then the last will be the next generation's war, if the Lord tarries um, what I think you know, the next generation is facing. And so, so we're going to look at that through September into October, and I think it's, it's important and, and timely. And that'll take us up and through our annual Certainty Conference. And our Certainty Conference is going to be a little bit different this year, and I'm really excited about it. Um, we're, the, the theme, in conjunction with what you know, how we're ending that Issues Facing the Church series is the next generation. So, you know, typically we pick a core doctrine and we, we study that in great detail and, and preach on that in the evening, study that in the morning. We're going to be, it's going to be a little bit different. It's not going to just be very specific topical conference like that. Um, it's going to be more of how we pass on our doctrinal DNA to those coming behind us, to the next generation? How do we train biblical leaders? How do we instill leadership principles according to the Bible? And how we ensure that our churches don't throw away the book after we're gone? And how we raise up, you know, and how we, how we train and, and how we do that properly um, for all of us so we can pass on to the next generation the torch that we need to pass on to so they can take it and run. Um, and not have to figure it out on their own. So in some ways, it's going to be sort of a mix between a discipleship conference and a missions conference, but it's going to be really good. I want you to mark it down uh, on your calendars. If you don't know, the dates for the Certainty Conference are are October 1st through the 4th. So that's a Sunday through a Wednesday, so mark those down. Plan on being here every night in the mornings if you can. 
And the evening speakers are going to be Code Blaze, pastor of Downtown Baptist Temple in Ocala, Florida, and Lee Ridings, uh, pastor of Greater Hope Baptist Church in Dallas, Georgia. So Lee was with us in February, so some of you might remember Lee, but they're going to share the evening services. And then the morning speakers, um, if, if you can attend those, will be Kenny Morgan. He was our evening speaker last year. Uh, Kenny Morgan and Brandon Briscoe, both of them are pastors at Midtown Baptist Temple. And so those are going to be great sessions for all of us. Certainly, if you're a part of that next generation, um, you're going to want to be here. But even if you're not, we all have a big role in helping invest in those who are, many of whom are your kids and grandkids. And, and we're, we're going to be talking about all of that and the role that we all have to play in that. And so that's where we're going. I just wanted you to be aware of that. And then by the time we get to mid-October after Certainty Conference, we'll get back in the book of Acts, pick it up in chapter 8, and go from there. But today, we start probably the most important chapter in this section of the book of Acts. It's the longest chapter in the book. It's 60 verses, and 53 of the 60 uh, there's Stephen's sermon to the rulers of Israel, giving them this one final opportunity to accept Christ as their Messiah and, and, and bring in the kingdom And after maybe a time of tribulation there. But it, it could have all happened then. But, you know, we're going to learn in this chapter, and as probably most of us already know, that that didn't happen. They didn't accept Christ. So I've titled today's sermon, The Final Straw, because that's what it is for Israel, at least for a while at least until the second coming of Christ. And like I said, the, the bulk of this chapter is one long sermon, one long response by Stephen that in, in some ways would, would really be best tackled together. But I, I figured you didn't want to be here until mid-afternoon, so, so we're going to break it up and cover it over three weeks. You're welcome for that. Uh, but we'll have, so we'll have our you know, final straw, part two and three. I'll do my best to kind of keep it all tied and connected together as we go along. But as we've seen through this study of the book of Acts so far, Acts is sort of a running narrative event of events, right? Primarily through the lens of the apostles. It is the Acts of the apostles. There's some exceptions to that, but that's generally what we see going on. And that's certainly the case, this, this aspect of a running narrative between Acts 6 and 7. Acts chapter 7 is the response Stephen's response to what we studied last week at the end of chapter 6. Stephen had been disputing with those of the synagogue of the Libertines in Jerusalem, and, and those guys didn't like his arguments, and they didn't you know, like what he was saying, so they rounded up false witnesses, they put together a smear campaign against him, and then they brought Stephen before the council of Israel's religious leaders that we've seen before. We saw the religious council in chapters 4 and 5. And these are the, you know, you might hear the Sanhedrin or the, they're the decision makers for the nation. They're the same guys, by the way, who crucified Jesus, you know, and sent him to the Romans. And so their decision about Jesus had already been made. Now God's given them another chance. And in fact, God said that it considered them ignorant. And we looked through that in Acts chapter 3. And he's given them another chance, but their decision's been made and, and they're not backing down now. And in this chapter, Stephen addresses this council as he is being put on trial. So they're bringing, essentially, from the end of chapter 6, four accusations against Stephen. That he had blasphemed God, he had blasphemed Moses, he had blasphemed the law, and he had blasphemed the temple. Those are very serious allegations. And so at the beginning of chapter 7, Stephen's standing before him and he's ready to give an answer. And it's a, it's a great example for us. Of, a, you know, of being true to 1 Peter 
as we all should be, that says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that's exactly what we see Stephen doing. They ask him, how do you, how do you answer? And he's ready. And he's ready for the longest sermon we see in the book of Acts. And he just goes and he takes off and we're going to see that today. And he answers them very courageously. He answers them very convincingly. Trusting in what Jesus had told his apostles in Matthew chapter 10. We looked at this before, but it's worth showing again. Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. Jesus speaking says, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils. It's exactly what's happened to Stephen. And they will scourge you in their synagogues. It's exactly what happened to Stephen. You shall be brought before the governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak. For it shall be given you in the same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And that's a, Stephen trust in that. That's a great, should be a great encouragement for you and me that if we are ready, if we've done the work, those things that we talked about last week, that Stephen was competent in those things, and we've done the work to study to show ourselves approved, when we're ready, that God will be there to, to give us the words to say, and that's exactly what we see Stephen. And Stephen's words spoken through the Holy Spirit are quite, quite powerful. So I want to look at them together. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. We're going to try to you know, tackle a big chunk to get started on this. We're going to look at the first 36 verses. So you have to stick with me today. We have a lot of ground to cover. But we're going to just start off by reading the ver- first eight, and then we'll pray, and then we're going to pick up the others along the way. So Acts chapter 7, verse 1, the Bible says, Then said the high priest, Are these things so? The allegations of blasphemy that he had been accused of at the end of chapter 6. And he, obviously Stephen, and he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Sharon. And he said unto them, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Sharon. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into his land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that they shall come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, so Abraham begat Isaac, and circumcised him the eighth day, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. So let's take a break here, let's pray, and then let's get in, into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we're so thankful to be here today, to be able to hear your word today, to be able to, to sing praises to you that you're so worthy of. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you use this time now in, in our hearts and our lives, and we can use Stephen as a great example uh, for how we should be in the confidence and the competence and everything that we looked at last week. Um, in his life that we're going to see on full display today. Use that to change us and to mold us more and more into your image. And Lord, I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. And I pray that it's honoring and glorifying to you. And again, it'll do the work that only it can do. Um, And I pray that you move me out of the way and speak clearly to all of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get into our our main points this morning, I need to lay a little bit of groundwork here in, in order for us to fully, I think, understand and certainly appreciate Stephen's message. And, and one thing you need to understand is that this is the third time 
that the council has tried to put a stop to the movement of the Holy Spirit. This is the third time. And three is a, a significant number. So we saw it in Acts chapter 4, we saw it in Acts chapter 5, and now here again we see it in Acts chapter 6 and 7. So three is a significant number in the Bible. It's certainly significant in the book of Acts for this council because this third resistance or rejection can be equated to three strikes and you're out because they strike out on this one. And I've told you before that Israel resisted and rejected Jesus by rejecting the message of three men. They rejected John the Baptist who led the way. They rejected Jesus himself and now they're rejecting Stephen. That's consistent with them rejecting God the Father in the Old Testament, Jesus in the Gospels, and the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. That's what Stephen says in Acts 7.51, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did so to ye. You see, it's a complete rejection across the board. And this rejection of Stephen and the Holy Ghost is, is really a rejection of this kingdom offer that we've been talking about, of the new covenant that comes to Israel through Christ. So I'm going to give you a little bit of doctrinal information here. And so, you know, stick with me. If you don't follow me completely, it's okay. You know, just, just keep listening. But when we get into the book of Acts, the old covenant of the law is being done away with because of the finished work of Christ. Now, the problem with the old covenant wasn't the law itself. Hebrews 7.12 says that it's holy, just, and good. The problem is, was then, and always has been the heart of man. And that's what the new covenant solves. And we've talked about this a little bit in our study. But let me define the new covenant for you. Because the new covenant isn't just the New Testament, and it isn't for the church. The new covenant is a covenant with Israel that will not be in place until the day of the Lord. Until the second coming of Christ in the millennium. You see it described in Jeremiah 31. You see it described many places in Old Testament prophecy. Maybe best defined in Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 through 33 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with who? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's fairly clear. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, and those days is an important phrase in the Bible that points to those days of tribulation, the tribulation time. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And that's the new covenant. And if Israel had accepted the kingdom offer that Stephen's given them here in Acts chapter 7, the new covenant would have come in to full effect. It's been ratified, so to speak, like if you think in, in, in like, you know, government terms. It's been ratified because Christ has died. But it's yet to be enacted because Christ isn't on the throne. And it's a new covenant because now the law is no longer necessary. Christ has come. The, He's finished the work and the Holy Spirit had been sent and the Holy Spirit is an integral part of the new covenant and the changing of the heart of man. You see that in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. A new heart also will I give you, speaking of the, the new covenant, what comes with it, and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you 
and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. In fact, the Holy Ghost's coming in Acts chapter 2 is a witness that God was moving away from the old and to the new. It's a bit of a taste of the world to come. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that, verses 15 and 16, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that, he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. He's quoting Jeremiah 31. Saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds while I write them. And the new covenant offer is part of, you can see it, literally see it on display in part of Stephen's offer and his connection to Moses that we talked about last week, right? How the glory of God shone on his face, you remember that? It's Acts 6.15 and all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And I took you back to Moses when he came down off Mount Sinai and how the, the same thing happened. Well, okay, you need, to, you need to connect those two together. Because when God gave the old covenant of the law to Moses, he came down, his face shined. God did the same thing with Stephen when he was giving the offer of the new covenant through Christ. And he did it so those leaders of Israel would know. Now, their hearts were blinded, but God left them without excuse. And you can't miss the symbolism in all of it, because just as the enactment of the old Mosaic covenant with national Israel did not occur until Moses came down from the mount, so the enactment of the new covenant will not occur until Jesus comes down from the mount, from the holy Mount Zion. And where was Israel when that happened with Moses? Where, are, where is Israel now, right before it happens with Christ? In both cases, they're in a state of unbelief. In a state of unbelief, they had gone crazy in Exodus and, you know, built a golden calf with Aaron. And, and this was all part of Stephen's message here in Acts chapter 7, to get them to see what they are missing. And he does it in this first section by three primary tactics. This is Stephen's plan of attack. All right, this is how he attacks the, the, the issue at hand. And first, he starts by attempting to reveal God's plan. It's our first point. He's going to reveal God's plan. And he does that by laying out the history of the nation of Israel, from Abraham through Joseph and Moses to David and Solomon and the building of the temple all the way to the captivity of Babylon. And this is jumping ahead a little bit, but with that new covenant offer in mind, look at what Stephen says about the temple down in, in verses 47 through 50 of Acts 7. But Solomon built him an house. Howbeit, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? You see, that's a new message for Israel. To them, God had dwelt and still did dwell in the temple. And before that, the tabernacle. That was his dwelling place. But the message is different now. Stephen said, The Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And why? It's because through the Holy Spirit, he's going to dwell in hearts. We are the temple. The people are the temple. And the council couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle any of it. 
And listen, in, in one way, kind of on the physical side of things, it's a little bit understandable because it's easy to get lost in all that Stephen is saying. He says a lot, longest sermon in the book of Acts. He covers a lot of territory, but more than that, he covers it in a very unique way. Right? The, the question was, what do you say to these allegations? And Stephen says, here's what I say. And he goes all the way back to Abraham. And he lays out the history of Israel. He doesn't directly address the allegations that are, that are made against him. Now, you know, we're going to see he, he does give his answer to those. It's just not obvious. He talks about how he views God, how he views Moses, how he views the law, how he views the temple. But he does it by tracing Israel's history and making some key points along the way. And he is very, very strategic in exactly what he talks about and what he doesn't talk about. Because his pur purpose is to reveal God's plan of the new covenant by showing all of this, the important keys to the Old Testament. And the covenant is just a formal promise. And Stephen wants to show these leaders that God has always kept his promises, even when it wasn't apparent that he would. And he's going to keep his promise now through Christ. So he starts where the nation of Israel starts, with Abraham. And he promised, and the promises that God made to Abraham. And we read about those in the first eight verses uh, and that's where Stephen talks about all of, all of the promises to Abraham. And in Acts 7-2, he lets the council know where he stands with God and where he stands with Abraham. First of all, he calls God the God of glory. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting title. It's only used one other time in the Bible. It's Psalm 29-3. It says, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. And it's absolutely no coincidence that Psalm 29 is a prophetic psalm outlining the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, and into the millennium when the new covenant with Israel will be in effect. It's also absolutely no coincidence that God, that the title that is used is the God of glory. Because what did God do when he's bringing in these new covenants? He showed glory on the face of the messenger. And so then if you look down to how this chapter ends in verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 29, you see, it's very clear. The Bible's very clear on, on you know, it, it sometimes can, can be difficult to understand and, and difficult to put together. But if you just pay attention to the words and you have, you know, a, a literal understanding of Scripture, um, you can see really what God's doing. Because in, at the end of this chapter, we see very clearly the, the pro prophetic aspect that he's talking about. The Lord sitteth upon the flood, yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Well, when's that going to happen? Because you can't say it's happened yet. When's he sit as king forever? When's, when's, it, when's the, the time of, of complete peace? It's the millennium. And so Stephen wants the council to know that He's absolutely not a blasphemer of God. He believes in the same God they do, the God of glory that keeps his promises, both old and new. And then he connects with them on Abraham because he calls Abraham our father, not your father. He's telling them, listen, I'm not trying to tear down Israel like you're accusing me of trying to do. I care about Israel just as much as you do. I care about the promises that God gave to Abraham just as much as you do. 
And those promises that God gave to Abraham involved two primary things. They involved a, a piece of land, and they involved a seed. And, and he lays that out very clearly in these first eight verses. The land, he describes in verse 3. And he said unto him, unto Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Come into the land that I'm going to give to you. And there's a land grant that, that God promises Abraham that, that the Jews are in a very, very small portion of today. But with the new covenant, they'll, they'll be in all of it. In Acts verse 7, verse 5, he talks about the seed, and he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on, yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him when as yet he had no child. And it's interesting because this verse says that both of those promises, the land and the seed, were going to come later. Abraham had to wait. But God held up his end of the bargain in history, and he's also going to hold up his end of the bargain bargain prophetically. And listen, there's no way to get around it. The plan was all about Israel. And the plan will get back to Israel as the head of the nations in full possession of the land. Like I said, that's not the case today. Because after this rejection in Acts chapter 7, God moves away from Israel for a time. But make no mistake, he's coming back to them. Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. That is their future. And the new covenant will be in place for them. Not, not for us now, because we're grafted in. We get to take advantage of some of the benefits of it. We even get to experience some of it now through the indwelling Holy Spirit and, and you know, our in, involvement in the kingdom of God. But covenants are with Israel. And God began with Abraham. And then Stephen jumps to talk about a couple deliverers of Israel, beginning with Joseph. Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And he delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. And now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. And then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over Shechem and laid in the sepulcher of Abraham, bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor and the father of Shechem. And there's, there's, there's so much in here that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit as we move through our, our next points, but we don't really have time to discuss all of it. But here's, here's under this point, here's what I want you to you see, and this is the next point on your outline sheet. What he's talking about here gets to God's promise of protecting Abraham's seed. It gets to God's promise of protecting Abraham's seed. He didn't let them die. That was, this was still early. There were, you know, 75 of them. We'll talk about that in a minute. This is early, and there's a there's a famine throughout the land. And he didn't let them die, and he used Joseph to save them. So tuck that away for our next point. And then he jumps to Moses, right? And we're going to come back into, into some of this, but we're just, we've got to move through this quickly now in this first point. But he jumps to Moses in, in this recounting of Israel's history. 
and revealing God's ultimate plan along the way. Look at verse 17. We're going to read for a minute here. We're going to read 17 down through verse 36. So follow along with me. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had swore to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the inn they might not live, in which time Moses was born. It was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was a full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him and was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? And then Moses fled at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled, and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses whom they refused, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. And again, we, we can't dive into the, the depths of all this. It's too much to cover and, and to, to go back into Exodus and look at all of it specifically. But, but here's what you need, need to understand as it relates to this point of the revealing of God's plan is just as God used Joseph to protect Abraham's seed, God used Moses to take him to the land. Right? So these are all just God's using, and he's pointing to, the, to his fulfillment of his promises and the covenant he made with Abraham. That's why verse 17 starts, but when the time of the promise drew nigh. What, what promise? It was, the, it was the promise of the land. And we know that Moses ultimately wasn't the one to take them into the land. That was Joshua. But Moses was the guy that took them there. And now, you know, we're, we're just focusing on some high points this morning. It's all we have time for. But I do want you to note something very quickly. There's so many little tidbits that I encourage you to go back in and, and look for yourself. But I, I want to note something here. Isn't it interesting that in verse 22, Stephen said that Moses was mighty in words and deeds. And yet, Moses' complaint to God when God told him that he was going to be the one to, to lead Israel out of Egypt and that he was going to have to go talk to Pharaoh about that, wasn't his complaint that he wasn't a very good speaker? I mean, Stephen says he was mighty in words. And in Exodus 4.10, Moses said unto the Lord, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech. That sounds a little different than mighty in words, and of a slow tongue. And there are a few reasons 
why this was so. But just inspirationally for us, I just want to give you this tidbit. You should learn that humility and brokenness are required before you can truly be used by God. Because in his first 40 years, when Moses was mighty in words, you know, that, that, that's when he tried, tried to do things on his own. But he was humbled. And he was taken to obscurity for 40 years before he was then able to be used by God in the mission. So don't miss little, there's just so many like little details like that all along the way in this sermon. But also in this description, Stephen is kind of, you know, taking a low-key approach to addressing the accusations against him regarding blaspheming Moses. He's saying, I believe Moses was our deliverer, just like you guys do. And he's, but he's doing way more than that. There's a way deeper purpose for Stephen in this retelling of Israel's history and revealing of God's plan. And that is, secondly, he wants them to, to recognize God's pictures. And this gets to the specificity of what Stephen was saying and what he talked about and what he didn't talk about. He wants them to recognize God's pictures. Because all throughout this narrative, Stephen is attempting to paint a vivid picture for them. And the picture is one of Christ. Stephen is telling them that the entire Old Testament points to Christ. The Christ that they have rejected. The whole Testament pointed to it. Now listen, there are many things. There are many people in the Old Testament that are pictures of Christ. There are many things, like the ark, for example, in the Old Testament are pictures of Christ. But Joseph is the classic example, probably the best type of Christ we see in the Bible. That's why Stephen chose Joseph. Listen, he could have chose Isaac. Right? He didn't talk about Isaac. You know, he goes from Abraham to Joseph. Isaac was a great type of Christ. But he goes to Joseph and, and, and look at what he does. Watch Stephen's masterpiece. Acts 7-9. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And listen, man, every word of God is pure. And Stephen knew exactly what he was saying because remember, the guys that he was talking to were the same ones that had envied someone not that long before. And who was it that they envied? Mark chapter 15, verses 9 and 10 tells us, But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of Jews? Talking about Jesus. For he knew that the chief priest, part of this group, had delivered him for envy. And what happened because of that envy? He was sold. He was sold by Judas to the chief priest for 30 pieces of silver. Very similar to Joseph's story. We don't have time to go through all of that. But you see, Stephen was just beginning to work the convicting sword. He said, it is a historical fact that your forefathers sold the chosen one of God for money because they envied him. And I don't doubt for a minute that some of the council began to think back to Jesus. And they knew that Joseph represented Jesus. And they knew that he represented Christ just in the way that he was being presented by Stephen. Look at verse 10. He goes just every single verse and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. So do you remember what happened through Joseph through this story? His brother sold him to the Midianites in Genesis 37, 28. says they brought him into Egypt. And after he got to Egypt, he went to work for a guy named Potiphar. 
Potiphar's wife made some false accusations against Joseph, and he was thrown in prison. And you know how Jesus was captured and put in prison? By false accusation. And they had a mock trial, and they brought forth false witnesses just like Joseph. But a couple of years later, God brought Joseph out of a jail and placed him at the right hand of Pharaoh, second in command. And guess what happened to Jesus? The false accusations that led to his death, prison, a picture of death. But he was delivered from the grave. Jesus took Jesus, God took Jesus out of the grave and exalted him to his own right hand. Joseph, again, just a picture of Jesus. Joseph found the lowest kind of humility in prison and was lifted to the loftiest exaltation. But the picture continues. Joseph, rejected by Israel, his brothers, was accepted by Gentiles in Egypt. And Jesus, rejected by Israel, turned and founded the body of Christ among whom? The Gentiles. Continues to be a picture of Jesus. Look at verse 11. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. You see, when Joseph went to Egypt, famine came. And his whole family back in Canaan found no sustenance. They had rejected their leader. And do you know what happened to the nation of Israel when they rejected Jesus Christ? They fell into spiritual famine that still exists today. And that famine is a type of Israel's blindness. And they have no spiritual sustenance at all. None. And look at verses 12 and 13. This one's good. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. And we could hang here for a little while. But, when, when, but let me just ask you a question. When is Jesus going to be made known to Israel? Did that happen at his first coming? No, he was rejected. But it's going to happen at the second time, at his second coming. And Stephen is trying to get them to see this picture in every sense. So what happened? Jacob sent the brothers down, and Joseph revealed himself to them, and he supplied all their need, a wonderful thing. Verse 14, then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. Everybody came. Everybody. All Israel was made up of those people. And there are some differences that you see on the number of people, right? So in, here it says 75. If you go back into Genesis and trace the story, Genesis 46, 27 says it was 70. But listen, that is very easily explained. I don't have time to do it here, but if you come to my LFBI class, we're going to talk about the book of Acts, we'll talk about all of them. There are actually three or four, you know, what are considered apparent contradictions in, in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. Um, they're all very, listen, they're all very easily explained. There's, there's no contradictions at all. But we've got to keep moving today. But back to our point, the 75 was it. That was the whole nation. Go back to Genesis 46. He lays out all the sons and then their son, their, their children and wives. That's the whole nation. And you know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of the fact that at the second coming, when Jesus is revealed, who's going to get saved? Part of Israel? No, Romans 11:26 says, all Israel shall be saved. And, you know, there might not be near as many left as when the tribulation began. But all that's left will be saved, all Again, perfectly typified in the life of Joseph. This is this perfect picture of Christ. 
You see here in this brief presentation of the life of Joseph, what Stephen is doing is presenting Christ. He's saying, listen, guys, you missed it. You missed him, and you killed him, but you got another shot. Can you see him now? And they can't. And from the council's frame of reference, they knew Christ had died, and listen, they knew he rose from the dead. They just didn't want to accept it. The evidence was overwhelming, and can I say that's not much different than today. The evidence is still overwhelming, and people reject it all the time. And it was all pictured in the life of Joseph. And guess what? It was all pictured in the life of Moses, too, as a deliverer of Israel. Maybe not as quite as, as full, not as complete as Joseph. But Moses is absolutely a type of Christ. And we could go through the same exercise. We just don't have time. We, again, we'd be here till mid-afternoon if we were going to do, do all of this. But let me just show you this. Moses, speaking in Deuteronomy 18, 15, says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet, capital P, prophet from the midst of thee of my brethren, like unto me. Unto him you shall hearken. And that, and that prophet is Christ. And that's what Stephen was pointing the council towards. But it, but it wasn't just for information. It was all intended to get them to, to number three, receive Israel's pattern. All right, he's very strategic, again, in what he says and what he doesn't say. Who he points to and who he doesn't point to. And it's all for them so they can receive Israel's pattern. Because there's a very clear pattern that Stephen has outlined through the very specific use of Israel's history. And here's the pattern. Rejection the first time. Acceptance the second time. Rejection the first time. Acceptance the second time. And listen, it starts with their leader, Abraham. Look back at the beginning of this chapter, Acts 7-2. And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Sharon, and Sharon, and said unto them, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. And then came he out of the land of Chaldeans, and dwelt there in Sharon. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into his land, wherein he now dwell. You see, God told Abraham to get out of his country and to go to Canaan. And he didn't exactly do that, did he? At least not right away. He left Mesopotamia, but he didn't make it to Canaan. And just for you Bible study students, let me just say, that explains the had said in Genesis 12.1. If you go back to Genesis 12.1, that explains the had said. You can look that up on your own. I don't have time to, to walk through it. But he was, he was also supposed to leave his family behind, and he didn't do that exactly either. There was not full obedience by Abraham. He brought some along. But listen, it was the second move after his father died that he went where God told him to go. And that sets a pattern. The patriarch led the way. And the, the, first, time, the first time is to kind of reject what God is calling you to do. And the second time is to accept it. The same was true of Joseph and Moses. They were both rejected as deliverers the first time. But they were accepted the second time. Joseph's brethren hated their brother. They sold him into servitude, yet later he became their deliverer. And they recognized Joseph. After they came back, they recognized Joseph when? At the second time. When they returned to Egypt for more food. They came one time. They didn't know who he was. They recognized him the second time. Acts 7.13. And at that second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren. And Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Israel rejected Moses when he first tried to deliver them out of Egyptian bondage. 
And he had to flee for his life. We read about that. Let's look at it from the Exodus account. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and he looked on their burdens and he spied an Egyptian smiting in Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. They were, they were fighting. They were fighting each other. And he said unto him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou this fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. You know, so Moses had lived a, a charmed life, right? He grew up in, in Pharaoh's house and he had everything, you know. He had all the money, he had it all. Said, you know, we read earlier he was, he was mighty in words and deeds, said he was fair to look upon. You know, this, this complete package, this dude had it all. And yet he chose to, to feel the afflictions of his brethren, you know, in Egypt and, and what they were facing. And so he, he's, he, he goes to, to lead them, but he's rejected. And he had to fear for his life. He has to go into hiding. He goes to the, you know, the backside of Midian. But when Moses came to them the second time, the nation accepted him. And he set them free. Acts 7.35, this Moses whom they refused the first time, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. And these two events that Stephen just happened to choose to talk about illustrate exactly how Israel treated Jesus Christ. Israel rejected their Messiah when he came to them the first time. John 1.11, he came unto his own, his own received him not. But listen, when he comes again the second time, they will absolutely recognize and receive him. Stephen was just trying to get them to do it then. Stephen wanted them to recognize him and receive him then. Can you see him? That's the, look, like, look at Zechariah 12.10. And speaking prophetically of the second coming. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. You see, there's going to come a day that they are going to look upon him, and they'll be saved when they do. Stephen was just saying, you can do it now. Can you see him? Can you see him through the promises to Abraham? Can you see him through the plan that lays out perfectly throughout the Old Testament? Can you see him in the life of Joseph? Can you see him in the life of Moses? All you got to do is see him. You just got to look to him now. There's still a chance. Can you see the pattern? This is the pattern laid out from the beginning of our nation with Abraham. He led the way. You already made the rejection. Now you just have to accept him. But you got to see him. That's what Stephen is doing. This is the most beautiful message that you might find in the Bible. And, and despite what they did to his son, Despite the rejection, God has still not cast away his people forever. Israel today is suffering from a spiritual blindness that will one day be taken away. Individual Jews are being saved today in the same way that you and I are saved. 
but the nation as a whole is blind to the truth of Jesus Christ, and they have been since Acts chapter 7. But listen, there is a false doctrine out there that says the church has replaced Israel. And that the new covenant is the New Testament that applies to the church. But to get there, to get to that conclusion, you either cannot see this clear pattern that Stephen is laying out, and it's all throughout Scripture, by the way. Spiritually, our first birth is rejected. We have to be born again. And if you are, the second birth is accepted. So be born once and die twice. Be born twice, you only have to die once. And listen, I could go on and on. The younger brother is always received while the older is rejected, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob. There's pictures throughout Scripture. So if you believe that Christ has replaced the church, you have to reject this pattern in Scripture, or you cannot believe in the literal second coming of Christ. And I'm telling you, if you don't believe in the literal second coming of Christ, then you are in trouble for every interpretation of Scripture. Because if you can't believe literally, if you can't take this Bible and view it literally, except where he tells you not to, then you get to make it up. You get to decide when it's literal or not. That's it's a very dangerous place to be. Both of those positions are wrong. The new covenant is for Israel, and God will save them and bring them back to prominence. And that's what Stephen wanted the council to see. And we wanted them to receive. The kingdom offer of the new covenant was valid. They just had to see God's plan. They had to see how all of the Old Testament pointed towards it. They needed to recognize the pictures. They needed to see Christ in Joseph. They needed to see Christ in Moses so that they could receive the pattern then. And if they would have received it then, we wouldn't be sitting here today. But we are. But we are. So what's all this mean? What's this mean for you? What's this mean for me? This, you know, message to Israel, this offer to Israel that Stephen's laying out. What's it mean for us? Listen, the question that Stephen was putting before the council is really the same question that God puts before us. Do you see what God's doing today? you see what God has done in history? And do you see what's doing today? Do you see God's plan for your life in the pages of this book? Can you see it? Can you recognize him for who he is? So that you then give him the only response that's due, that's worthy, is, Lord, here I am. All that I am is yours. It's if you see it, if you see him for who he is, it's, it's the only response you can give for the Savior of the world and the Savior of your soul. Because if not, if you don't see that, you're going to be just like the council that was before Stephen. And there'll come a day that the book will be opened and you will be judged. And I promise you everything will be clear that day. Every knee will bow that day. So why don't you bow today? To see it today. And bow to him today and give your life to him today. You see, the question that Stephen was putting to the council is the same question that God puts to you and me every single day. Receive him today and get involved in his plan for your life through this church today so that you don't have to be ashamed on that day.